Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marcellaro. And this week, my guest is paleoanthropologist Dr. John Hawks. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. For the listeners, Dr. John Hawks is a Distinguished Achievement Professor of Anthropology at the University of Wisconsin, Associate Chair and Undergraduate Advisor. He earned his Ph.D. in Anthropology from the University of Michigan in 1999. His interests include biological anthropology, paleoanthropology, and anthropological genomics. That's a mouthful. <laughs> it is, yeah. So um, I know how astronomers and physicists get interested in their topic they watch Star Trek, or they watch Star Wars, or they read science fiction by Arthur Clarke or somebody, their favorite science fiction author, and they got turned on to space and science. I'm curious, how does a young man become involved in anthropology? What, what are the triggers? What captured your imagination? How did you become passionate about anthropology? Well, you know, I grew up in Western Kansas, and, uh, and as I was, when I was a kid, I used to find fossils. And of course, in Kansas, there are fossils of ancient marine mammals or marine reptiles. Um, but uh, but I got interested in that. I loved National Geographic, loved the idea of traveling around, and I just got fascinated by our fossil relatives. You know, these these ancient creatures that are related to us, but very different from us in lots of ways. And so that's what sort of pulled me into the field. That brings um, up an interesting to topic. We don't have a, a linear fossil record of humans, do we? No, it's amazing, actually. And and the fossil record, a lot of people maybe don't know that it's been growing just enormously lately because we are making new discoveries in many different parts of the world. Of course, Africa, where I work, super important, but also some other places. We've discovered that there's a very diverse tree of our fossil relatives, and some of them are, are maybe close to our line of descent, but others of them go off as, as distant cousins of ours and do their own thing. And across all of them, there's this tremendous diversity of what they're like and, and how they lived. Can you give us a dictionary definition of anthropology, for starters? Sure. Anthropology is the study of people. And, of course, there's lots of different kinds of social scientists that study people. Anthropologists are especially interested in the diversity of humans in the world, our cultural diversity, our linguistic diversity, and our physical diversity, you know, our bodies and how they're different, and our genetics. And the biological side of anthropology is about how is our biology different in different people? And, and where did we come from? What's our connection to the natural world? Is that what paleoanthropology is? Yeah, so paleoanthropology, we study fossils. Uh, we study the ancient relatives of ours that we find bones of, fossilized bones, across the last six or seven million years of time. Um, and, and try to figure out how they're connected to us. And increasingly, what uh, we can say about their behavior and genetics. Can you give me kind of a thumbnail sketch for starters about, in, a, in the short time we have, the evolution mm -hmm. of humans? Uh, we're all familiar with Lucy, who's maybe, yep. what, 10 million years old. How, yeah. How, how did that Lucy come to be in the scheme of things, and how are, how have things evolved since? Kind of give us an sure. overview. Sure. Um, our closest living relatives are chimpanzees and bonobos. And those two primates separated from our common ancestors around 7 million years ago. In the subsequent 7 million years, our 
our relatives underwent a series of changes. The first of those changes was the development of upright posture and upright walking, so the bipedal locomotion that we have. Lucy, who lived around 3.2 million years ago, so sort of like the midpoint of our evolutionary history, is a biped. She walks like us. She also had relatively small canine teeth, and that's a feature that evolved really early in our lineage. So we had upright walking, small canines. But fundamentally, our early relatives, like Lucy, were basically ape-like in many other ways. They had relatively small brains. Um, they had small body size compared to most living people. Um, they, were, they were different from us in their physical appearance in lots and lots of ways, but they walked upright. And of what course, was the, the biological famous- advantage of being able to walk upright? Usually, a genetic evolution has some benefit or uh, there's natural selection going on or something like that. Yeah, so our close relatives, chimps, gorillas, orangutans, they are all committed to to having lots of activity in the trees and the tree canopy in the rainforest, um, but also getting around on the ground. And, and chimps and bonobos and gorillas in particular, knuckle walkers on the ground. If they walk upright, which they do, they can all walk bipedally, it's really energetically expensive for them because their skeletons are built for for getting around in trees really well, and that means that they have to walk around on the ground with, with bent knees if they're walking bipedally. Our ancestors seem to have lived in habitats that had less canopy and, and more Savannas, open... Savannas, I'm thinking... So initially, it was more closed than the savanna. You know, the, Lucy and her ilk were just starting on the savanna, and okay. earlier than that, they were really in sort of open woodland, we would call it, and getting from tree to tree, carrying around things, maintaining watchfulness, you know, so that you can sort of see what's around you. We think that all of those things made an upright stance more advantageous, and so our lineage committed to it. They said, "We're going to change the skeleton so that you can't walk on all fours anymore." And that had costs. You know, we can't run nearly as fast as chimpanzees can. And for predator really? avoidance, wow, yeah, oh no, we're nowhere near as fast so as a chimpanzee can run a 10 second, 100 meters. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, you know, much faster, you know. So, wow. so the fact is that we're terrible at running compared to these guys. Um, but we do have a degree of efficiency. We walk with relatively little effort. And, and we're energetically pretty efficient. And as we today, you know, have, you know, those of us who are runners know that actually you can run a pretty long distance quite efficiently as a human. And so what we lost in speed and power, we gained in energetic efficiency and ability to, to sort of see around us and, and ability to carry stuff around. And Did that, that seemed to be really important Excuse me. Did that efficiency yeah, of walking have something to do with being able to be more wide-ranging and have a more wide-ranging food supply? I'm just guessing here. I'm just throwing out it, ideas. Initially, initially, it probably didn't, right? The first bipeds probably had sort of chimpanzee-like groups, a chimpanzee-like social structure. They might have had a little bit more you know, larger home ranges than chimpanzees, but probably not a ton. They were eating diverse arrays of foods, but initially, we know this from, from actually stable isotope sampling of their teeth, we know that they were eating kind of forest-type foods initially, even as they became better able to get around in open habitat. 
But once we became bipeds and were committed to it, the savannas opened up for us. And that allowed humans and our close relatives to take advantage of different foodstuffs, much larger home ranges, get farther away from water sources, and, and really become more open country livers. Is this what started 7 million years ago, or is that arrived later? So, so really, we're talking now about the time period of Lucy and thereafter, so within the last 3 million years. And really, this time period from maybe 3 million to 1.5 million years ago is a time period when lots changed in our evolution. The second big shift was an increase in manual manipulation, tool-making, the development of stone tool manufacture, the reliance on hunted animals, and uh, and and the and an increase in body size, which gave us much larger home ranges. This so is the all the while hunter gatherers for millions of years, right? Yeah, at this point, right, this really the evolution of the mo- of the human hunting and gathering type lifestyle, which means for humans, it's a social lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that depends on division of labor and the collection of different types of foods by different parts of a group. Um, once you become a hunter, you humans, our strategy for hunting, it's very different from lions, right? Our strategy for hunting is moderate risk. We know that hunting is a high failure risk activity. You know, being able to hunt a large mammal is tough for us. We don't have high success rates at it, but we can moderate that risk by having members of our group who are gathering other types of foods, right? Not only gathered plant foods, but also small animal foods that are, you know, that are easier to to hunt individually. Um, All of those things contribute to a broad diet for humans and and one that relies on this social cooperation. So that's really something very special about our genus, the genus Homo, is that we've set ourselves apart, not only as upright walking, but also in having these social dynamics that say that, oh, now we're relying on technology, we're relying on social organization, we're relying on a breadth of dietary resources. Did all this evolution start in one place, or did it start in multiple different places on the planet? I'm thinking of Australopithecines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our genus, Homo, originated in Africa, and every other hominin that is not in our genus was only found in Africa. So the first three million years, maybe four million years of our evolutionary history, exclusively African. The genus Homo initially really started to branch out, we now understand. There were lots of different kinds of them. A couple of those left Africa and entered other parts of the world. And the first of those to do that is a species that that is pretty well known. It's called Homo erectus. This species, the first large-bodied human relative, the first to, to leave Africa, the first to, you know, we think probably become an effective hunter, that species had a lot going for it, and it became quite successful. Did all of these homos evolve linearly from one group of ancestors, or did they evolve in parallel? 
Yeah. 30 years ago, we really had this idea that once Homo erectus comes around, it's sort of like, okay, now it's just downhill all the way to humans, right? <laughs> because you've got the basics, right? You have large right. bodies, you've got hunting, you've got technology. And what happened after that was a gradual increase in the size of the brain, gradual increase in cultural sophistication, better technology. We thought all of this is sort of linear. What we now understand is that around 2 million to 2.5 million years ago, there was a pulse of speciation with several different kinds of homo. Uh-huh. Erectus was one of them, but there were others. And some of those, like homo habilis, remained in Africa. Some of them we find outside of Africa. One species called Homo floresiensis we find on the island of Flores, which was never connected to the Asian mainland. So we know that they got there across a water crossing, but they're small-brained, they're relatively small-bodied, and we think today that they come from this initial radiation of our genus. Um, And a species that I've actually studied a lot, Homo naledi, uh, our team discovered it in 2013. It's found only, as far as we know so far, in South Africa, but it seems to have emerged from this early radiation of, of our genus and then survived for at least a million years alongside other evolving species. So you had this sort of pulse where lots of different versions of our genus come out. What? One of them, Erectus, sort of seems to be pretty successful and spread. What do we think caused those pulses and those changes? Was it natural mutation from solar radiation or or was it intermarriage? Usually when we look at this and and there's never, you know, it's, it's very rare that we know the answer, right? Once in a while you say, Oh, what happened was they got to this totally new continent and they spread and diversified, right? When the horses spread it from the new world into the old world around two and a half million years ago, there's this pulse of diversification because suddenly there's all these different kinds of niches that they can invade. With hominins, our relatives, we think that what happened with the evolution of our genus was a reliance on technology that gave them a little bit of, that gave them behavioral options that our other relatives and other kinds of primates didn't have. And so in that, there were then niches that became available. And some of those were localized. And so we see a species in one geographic location for a while. And some of them enabled better colonization of different areas, different habitats. And so we see some of them spreading out. We think that probably that's what's going on. We used to imagine that coming up with these new ways of living was like a feedback process. Like once you become cultural, you're going to roll over every other cultural being. And so it's a constant stream of improvement. We now understand that actually there were stable cultural niches that existed for a while that that species existed either in one part of the world or in or in one kind of behavior and occasionally interacted with each other but were able to survive alongside each other for quite a long time but they eventually died out leaving just the neanderthal and the homo sapiens right at the time so neanderthals to get into them right yeah we'll get into neanderthals in the second half of the show but i just want to briefly introduce them 
Yeah, absolutely. At the time, Neanderthals lived, and they lived between their first, you know, the divergence from our most of our ancestry um, was around seven hundred thousand years ago, right? So, it's sort of the last chapter, in a way, of our evolution. Um, by the time they originate, and and our ancestors, modern humans, are are also continuing to evolve in Africa. There are at that time at least five groups of hominins in different parts of the world. Um, Homo naledi in South Africa. Um, there's Homo floresiensis in Flores. There's Homo luzonensis in the Philippines. There's a group that, that we know about only from DNA today called the Denisovans that, that lived in the eastern part of Eurasia. There's the Neanderthals and, and modern humans. So actually, the world is still teeming with human diversity at the time our species originated, at the time that the Neanderthals live, and it's only the last 30,000 to 50,000 years that modern humans, our the groups that we know about today, are alone on the planet. And that's a really short time. Okay, well, let's take a break. Mm -hmm. um, that's all we have time for in the first half of the show. I want to take a short commercial break. In the second half of the show, I'll be talking with uh, paleoanthropologist Dr. John Hawks. Stay with us. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. We're back. I'm chatting with paleoanthropologist Dr. John Hawks from the University of Wisconsin. So let's fast forward to the, the Neanderthal era. I don't mm -hmm. remember much about my anthropology when I was a student, but I thought I remembered that there was a single-minded evolution from Neanderthals into Homo sapiens, but that's apparently not true. And evidently, they coexisted together and interacted with each other. And there's competing theories about how they interacted with each other. Did they absorb uh, and commingle, or did, did they intermarry? Did they come to blows and um, Homo sapiens obliterated the Neanderthals? Tell me about the origin of the Neanderthal and how they came to interact with Homo sapiens. Absolutely. You know, the, our knowledge of the Neanderthals has changed enormously in the last 10 to 15 years. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is genetics. And I can't overstate the extent to which knowing about the genomes of these ancient people has changed our knowledge of, of how they existed, right? So there's a big part of it. But also, there's additional discoveries in the fossil record, with the largest Neanderthal site in terms of fossil evidence, right, which includes the skeletons of, of more than 50 individuals, is a site in Spain, the Cima de los Huesos. 
And people have been working in this site. It's a cave site that has just a pile of bodies. People have been working in it since the 1980s. But it's only recently with genetics and with better studies of morphology that we've understood that these are actually early Neanderthals. They lived 450,000 years ago. So our knowledge of the, of the temporal extent of this group has really changed. And our knowledge of their behavior has changed. We used to think that they were sort of dull creatures, and they didn't do anything that was really, you know, very interesting. Right? I they, assume they, they were tool users. Yeah, they were absolutely tool users. They were hunters. They made points. They hafted those points onto onto spears with glue. They we now understand they used glue. specialized tools. Yeah, absolutely. Where did they get glue? Two places. One, they used birch bark to to smoke it and remove the carbon content, which leaves a pitch that oh, they cool. can use as a glue. In some places, they used bitumen. They, they found natural seeps of, of petroleum and used that to make glue with. And in some cases, they used animal glue. You know that that they had processed from animals, so so they're doing all kinds of stuff. They're using pigments. They're uh, they're painting themselves. We think they're using feathers. We've got a couple of examples now of Neanderthal engravings inside of caves. Um, these are things that we thought were exclusively modern human. You know, and yeah, yeah and pretty big really, brains too, didn't they? Yeah. So Neanderthal's average brain size is a little bit bigger than ours. Um, on average, um, and and we don't know necessarily that that the size of the brain is everything. And in fact, we know that the shape of the Neanderthal brain is slightly different from ours. We don't know what the import of that is. And I can tell you that people in my field have studied Neanderthals for 150 years, trying to figure out what was wrong with them. <laughs> Did but, they have language? I can tell you today. I'm very sure they had language. Um, and I'll tell you, when I was a graduate student, you know, maybe 25 years ago, this was an active area of debate. You know, people thought, well, maybe Neanderthals could say a word, but they couldn't have said anything very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got to tell you, the, the, you know, the, when we look at what we understand of their record today, which has elements in it that are sophisticated, they're human-like in what they do, we look at some of the challenges that they faced. You know, they lived in a periglacial environment. Um, they wait, 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 that's a new term on me. What's that? Periglacial means around the glaciers, right? They're, they're living in an ice age world where they're not living on the tundra, but they are living in places that are substantially cold in many cases compared to today. Mm -hmm. They are, they're living with, with animals that are very, um, it's very tough to live with compared to today. You know, is this Germany or is this northern, further north, like Arctic Circle? Germany, England. No, they, there are a couple of Neanderthals. I was going to say they didn't live in the Arctic Circle, but there is a site um, in Russia that is probably Neanderthal and is above the Arctic Circle. You know, they have this kind of flexibility to them that we didn't imagine was true 30 years ago. Um, so that's important. But the other thing, the most important thing is the genetics. And to, to really understand the impact that genetics has had, um, I like to give an analogy. You know, when I visited the first place that people found Neanderthals. This is in Germany. Um, they found Neanderthals around 150 years ago, a little bit more now, 1856. 
um, they were dumping bones out of a cave as they were quarrying outside of Dusseldorf. And, and those bones included the first partial skeleton of a Neanderthal. And people looked at them as so different. Maybe it's a different species. They called a Homo Neanderthalensis. And that same skeleton was the first that anybody got any genetic information out of. Um, a good friend of mine, Svante Pabo, who is uh, in Leipzig today, director of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology for many years, um, was leader of the team that found the first Neanderthal DNA. And they sequenced a little bit of a part of our DNA that's called the mitochondrial DNA. And every cell has got a mitochondria, has got many mitochondria in it. They're the, what they call the powerhouse of the cell, right? They're used, they're used in metabolic uh, processes. And that has a little bit of DNA in it, 16,000 base pairs. And in this first sequencing attempt, they got about 300 base pairs of this DNA, right? So, so the chemical strand of DNA is made up of these nucleotides, and, and they stretch out, and they got 300 of them in a sequence, and said, wow, this is really different from humans. The first genome of Neanderthal, same team sequenced in 2010, a genome is 3 billion base pairs. And I like to say, you know, when I visited this site the first time, they had this little monument in the ground made out of concrete. This is very German kind of thing. And in it, they had inscribed those 300 base pairs that were the first sequence that had ever been found. And it was about a meter square, right? So, you know, you're looking at something that you could, you know, imagine setting a chair on and sitting on. If you did this to the 3 billion base pairs that they got in 2010, this monument would have to be 14 kilometers in diameter. Wow. <laughs> That's the amount of information that we're talking about. So what right? you're saying we're is really our talking. understanding of the Neanderthal has changed a lot with this project. You know, it is, it is now 3 billion base pairs we have at high resolution from three Neanderthals, and we've got large parts of the genome from many others. And, and we know how they compare to us in detail. And part of this process was discovering, and this was, you know, really sort of the first important discovery about it, was discovering that, oh, we've still got Neanderthal genes today. That genes that That's came a shocker. From That's a shocker. It was for a lot of people. They said, oh, we thought this group was extinct, right? They should be gone. But actually, you and I and everyone in the world has some Neanderthal genes. So now, let's, let me, for, let's back up a second and set the stage. Yeah. So the Neanderthals mm -hmm. are in Northern Europe and acclimated yeah. to the cold weather. And then you got the, the Homo sapiens from Africa who evidently migrated north into Europe. Is that right? And came that's into basically right. That's basically right. There was the Neanderthals were a Western Eurasian group. Um, we think about them as European because we found them in caves in Europe first. But they did live in Israel. They lived in Iraq. They lived in Uzbekistan. They lived as far east as as uh, the Altai Mountains. Um, and so, across basically the western half of Eurasia, there's Neanderthals. They lived in that area from about 700,000 years ago up to around 45,000 years ago, maybe a little less in, in the very last parts. Um, our 
majority ancestors. I always have to be careful to say, you know, because Neanderthals are our ancestors, but they're a minority of our ancestry. They make up for at the most around 4% of anybody's genomes today. For many people, it's much less. Um, For most of our genetics, it comes from Africa and the people that lived Mm -hmm. in Africa Mm -hmm. at the same time as Neanderthals, those people we call early modern humans. And and they're 95% or more of our genetic heritage. Those groups came together multiple times. What happened happened when they came together? Was there instant warfare? I'll tell you what, we know... Easy to say or not? The reason... The reason why we know they came together is because there was instant sex that <laughs> they were they were reproducing every time That's they came together. That's what I read. Yeah, <laughs> and and every time when I say every time, we know that Neanderthals, the last Neanderthals that lived after a hundred thousand years ago, right? Those Neanderthals got something like ten or fifteen percent of their genomes from these Africans. So there was an encounter. It carried with it genetics. Those genetics made a difference to Neanderthals. And later, there were other encounters. And one of the, probably the most impactful of those encounters was something like 60,000 years ago, when a group from Africa dispersed from Africa into West Asia, mixed with Neanderthals, and then carried that genetic legacy everywhere else in the world. So what happened right? that to was really the an- demise then of the Neanderthal? Basically, the Neanderthals after that time, they hung on for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, they, that, that initial mixture, there were subsequent contacts and mixtures into Europe as, as modern humans increased their range further and further into the Neanderthal range. Um, but the Neanderthals are all gone by 40,000 years ago or so. And, and what's left is a population that has only a little bit of Neanderthal left in it. What happened to them? It's a matter of speculation. If you ask me, I honestly think the most likely scenario is that these African dispersing humans are carrying with them not only some, some good tricks you know, in terms of culture, but also some disease. And the one thing that we know was really important in the contacts and our pickup of Neanderthal genetics, you know, is disease-related genes. That we're picking uh-huh. up immunity genes from them. We're probably carrying our own diseases that are a problem for us and them. And at that stage, the growing population has has not only its growth in its favor, but also the growth of its disease patho- its disease um, environment. In its favor, and and I think that that's very important. But I don't think that's alone. You know, one of the things about genetics is that what it makes visible is all of these things that you would never notice from bones. And, and disease is one of them. Diet is one of them. The the adaptations that different populations have to different you know balances in terms of diet. Um, the the kinds of things that they carry with them in terms of of you know and and pick up in terms of pigmentation in terms of cold adaptation. Um, it is fascinating to look at those. You know, it's like the tinker toys of our bodies in our genome, and. And when these different, very different populations encountered each other, they picked up 
little tricks from each other and left those as legacies in different groups of humans today. Cool. Well, we're starting to run out of time. I have time for one more question. Mm -hmm. One of the things you've written about and believe is that human evolution has actually continued, uh, I take it biologically, as opposed to just simply a cultural overlay on a fixed genome. Can you yeah. tell me about this? About what, how do you, in what ways is human evolution changing? Recently? One of the first, yeah, one of the first ways that we noticed this after the Human Genome Project, and you started getting genetic samples from lots of places in the world, is there were these genes that we knew were important to us that actually have changed really recently, like within the last few thousand years. And today, it is we know much more about this because we have ancient genetics from populations, especially in Europe, but also in some other parts of the world, from the last few thousand years. And you can see the frequencies of genes changing. These include genes related to skin pigmentation, right? You look at light-skinned populations today, light skin is a function of many genes working together, almost all of which have undergone changes within the last 20,000 years. So, light skin is something that has really changed in the last few thousand years in Europeans, in North Asians, in the New World, New World peoples, right? This is something that has been evolving fast. Genes related to disease and resistance to pathogens, super fast evolving. So, we've got lots of new genetic defenses against what are fundamentally new diseases, like malaria, um, really recently evolved disease, and falciparum malaria in particular, and the kinds of genetic adaptations to it, sickle cell is one of the most famous of those, are things that have evolved recently in human populations. But this process is still going on. In fact, when we look at populations in the world today, we do see that there are slight differences from generation to generation in gene frequencies because you have slightly different things that are you know, correlated with having more kids in one generation than another. And those are evolutionary changes. The very small changes, incremental changes that Darwin said, this is how evolution works, incremental changes over a long time, we're seeing in our populations now. It's actually making a difference to us. Very interesting. Well, we're, we're absolutely out of time now. Do you have any closing thoughts you want to sort of wrap it up with? Well, sure. You know, I, you can read more about the stuff that we do in South Africa, our book, Almost Human, which recounts the discovery of some of these fossil hominins. But, you know, when you look at what's going on, you know, and you want to keep track, you know, there's wonderful sources to find out what's happening in human evolution. My blog, John Hawk's web blog, is a great place for this. And I encourage people to follow along. This is one of the most exciting moments that we have that's ever happened in history for learning about our evolution. And, and the evidence for this is so widespread and accelerating. It's really a great time to be an anthropologist. I know you got me turned on now. I want to become an anthropologist. This is really exciting stuff. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you for joining me and telling me about this stuff. You really opened my eyes, and I, I hope you've educated and entertained and the listeners. It's been fabulous. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to John Martellaro and paleoanthropologist Dr. John Hawks. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week. Mm -hmm.